Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, uh, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney, and Eric, this is theoretically our first podcast of spring. Oh. Although you'd actually be hard-pressed to believe it in any of the places where I'm hanging out. Uh, it's still got that end of winter, everything is just dirty phase here in Anchorage. And I'm told that back home in Vermont, where I'll be heading tomorrow, uh, we just had another foot of snow. So, yay, spring! <laughs> it is, in a relative sense then, quite spring-like where I am outside Philadelphia, where uh, there is no snow on the ground. It's only about 48 degrees. Uh, not very oh. springy, but... Balmy. Spring- Yes, balmy compared to Anchorage, I suppose. Um, I should take this opportunity to note uh, that Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney isn't my only Showtime podcast. Uh, I am also hosting a podcast limited series, four episodes, accompanying the new sports gambling docuseries Action, doing it solo, no Mulvaney. Uh, But Kieran, I'm sure you'll get the call when Showtime does a show on polar bears or whale watching or generally being in places where there is no springtime. Well, they did do that climate change series uh, not so long ago, so anything is possible. Yeah. All right. There you go. Uh, or so. even you know beyond that, if if they want a podcast to accompany the series Smilf, you know, when I think Smilf, <laughs> I think Kieran Mulvaney. Right. Sure. <laughs> I had a feeling that line would handcuff you. Is handcuffing actually also a subplot in in Smilf? <laughs> uh, sadly, I have to admit I haven't watched it, so I'm not sure. Okay, okay, <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, we better move on. Action, as they say, huh? Get there it? you go. There you go. Uh, All right. Uh, uh. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes. Coming up later in this particular podcast, we will be welcoming Shelley Finkel, who, if he's listening to the uh, the opening of this one, is probably wishing already that he'd never come on here. Um, he is the manager of heavyweight title holder Deontay Wilder. And uh, Shelley's going to take us behind the scenes a little bit on Deontay's decision to make his May 18th title defense against Dominic Brazil on Showtime. Uh, that decision, of course, was the big news of the week in boxing, in case you missed it. We recorded a special podcast on Tuesday with Showtime's Stephen Espinosa talking about that as well. But uh, although it was the big news in boxing this week, it wasn't the only news. Uh, at the end of the pod, we'll talk about all the uh, various other stories that uh, are going on. And we will also look ahead to this coming weekend's fight. Uh, And we'll take a quick dip into the mailbag. A quick note about timing, however. Uh, As you might have noted from the top of this podcast here, I'm talking about being in a couple of different spots in Alaska and in Vermont. And uh, because of travel schedules going from one to the other, we are in fact recording this podcast on Saturday, March 23rd. So we will not be talking about the Pulev Dinu fight or the Peterson Brothers bouts. Uh, If something spectacular has happened in one or more of those fights. By the time you're hearing this, we'll circle back to them on next week's pod. But to kick things off this week, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, We're not reviewing a fight. We're not previewing a fight. Uh, Rather, what we're going to do is a thorough breakdown of a subject that boxing fans are just starting to think and talk about. Uh, Who will be, about nine months or so from now, the fighter of the decade for the 2010s? It's a question that we're not trying to fully answer this week on the podcast, uh, largely because there's still about seven and a half percent of the decade left to go. uh, And it ain't over till the plus sized big boned lady sings uh, or the festively plump lady, if you prefer. (laughs) Um, 
that's a little preview for if I Bye-bye. ever do my Sesame Street voices. There, there. You know, I have a uh, not an A level, but a B level Cartman uh, in my in my holster. But in any case, it's a topic that's beginning to heat up, uh, in part because there isn't an obvious front runner, and that's not entirely unusual. These things are rarely clear cut. Uh, the previous decade, most people believed Manny Pacquiao to be worthy of Fighter of the Decade honors, but Floyd Mayweather certainly had his supporters. In the 1990s, there was a Roy Jones faction and a Pernell Whitaker faction. In the 80s, the majority seemed to agree that it should be Sugar Ray Leonard, but some made a case for Mike Tyson, or even if they scored a certain fight a certain way, Marvin Hagler. But what's making this decade unique is that it's not just a two-fighter or three-fighter debate at this point. We've isolated a field of seven boxers for whom you can make a decent case. So here's what we'll do. For each fighter, one of us will present the case for, then the other will present the case against. And at the end of that, we'll each reveal our current top three rankings with the understanding that those rankings can change over the next nine months. But the aim for now is just to have a discussion of all the relevant contenders and all the relevant factors and bring some clarity to the conversation. So here in alphabetical order are the seven names we'll be discussing. Canelo Alvarez, Gennady Golovkin, Chocolatito Gonzalez, Vladimir Klitschko, Vasily Lomachenko, Floyd Mayweather, and Andre Ward. And Eric, you're up first. Give us the case for Canelo Alvarez. Well, the case for Canelo begins with him being the only true boxing superstar who was in his prime this decade. He was 19 when the decade began. He'll be 29 when it ends. And I think whether he was or wasn't the best fighter of the decade, because of his star power and involvement in huge fights and being in his physical prime, I think future generations might look at him as the defining fighter of this decade. He's gone 21-1-1 with 13 knockouts so far in the 2010s, and he has at least one, maybe two big fights ahead of him this year. But just look at the names he's already fought this decade. Floyd Mayweather, Gennady Golovkin twice, Miguel Cotto, Arislandi Lara, Austin Trout, Shane Mosley, Amir Khan, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., James Kirkland, Alfredo Angulo, Carlos Baldemir. It goes on and on to where you forget about pretty good fighters like Ryan Rhodes and Liam Smith. And, of course, he's about to add Daniel Jacobs to the list. In terms of volume of big fights this decade, I think he has to be number one. In terms of money generated, he's probably number two or three. And he's fought at an elite level all decade, really getting consistently better with each passing year to the point that maybe we actually haven't seen his prime yet. Uh, He's won titles in three weight classes, including the legit lineal title at middleweight. He's exciting. He's loved. He's hated. He's crossed over into the mainstream. He's a one-namer. He doesn't need a last name. You just say Canelo. And every sports fan knows who you're talking about. He's like Madonna in that way. Uh, And I only mean to draw the comparison half jokingly. Think about Madonna's place in the debate for musical artist of the 80s. Nobody will tell you she was the best singer, but she probably had the most hits and had as much star power as anyone. Uh, Bottom line, even if he was never number one pound for pound, you can't have a fighter of the decade discussion without including Canelo. So if you're going to make the case against him, Uh, I think it arguably starts with that one official defeat. Uh, When he steps up against truly elite opposition, he was, CJ Ross notwithstanding, comprehensively outboxed by Floyd Mayweather. Uh, And there's an argument 
that maybe he's fortunate with decisions on a couple of other occasions. Uh, mm-hmm. Erislady Lara, maybe. Austin Trout, perhaps, although I don't really buy that one. Gennady Golovkin once, quite possibly twice. Um, any one, maybe two of those decisions go against him. And that kind of upsets the, uh, the whole momentum. Uh, for for a lot of the other matchups and, and everything else that has gone subsequently, and we're looking at Canelo in an entirely different light. It's a guy who's probably very good, but in the end, not quite good enough. And then, of course, there is the clenbuterol factor. Uh, look, I agree with you. He is certainly the biggest name right now, but there is a case to be made that he's ridden his luck and gotten the rub of the green to get there. Yeah, uh, that's a, it's the a strong case against him is that you know I cited the record twenty one one and one. If you change it to nineteen three and one or right. twenty and four or something along those lines, uh, I may have screwed up the math by the time I got to that uh, that, that last one. But you, you you up those losses or draws a little bit, and it definitely weakens his case. So next up is a guy who will forever, I think, whatever happens from here on out, be mentioned in the same breath as Canelo Alvarez, and that is Gennady Golovkin. Uh, And here's the case in his favor. Look, those of us who had too much time on our hands and too much willingness to check YouTube at the drop of the hat have been aware for a while of the stories of the German-based Kazakh who had been making noise in the middleweight division. And the moment he appeared on HBO in September 2012 now, can you believe, uh, it was clear what all the fuss was about. Look, Golovkin captured the public's attention with highlight reel knockouts. There's the body shot that felled Matthew Macklin. There's knocking out Daniel Giel while getting punched in the face. There's literally breaking Kell Brook's face. But in addition to that, in addition to the highlight reel, this is what made the crustier, more cynical type swoon. It was his old school skills, the subtle footwork, the way in which he would cut off the ring and pressurize his opponents. It's been a long time since anyone brought visceral excitement to the boxing ring, the way that Gennady Golovkin did and does. The sense that every time he walked to the ring, you were in a, with a really good shot of seeing somebody get knocked out and knocked out quite spectacularly. The menace that he brought to the ring combined with his evident niceness outside of the ring. And then there was the whole package from the, from the Seven Nation Army ringwalk music um, to his wonderful Kazanglish turns of phrase <laughs> to his to his Mexican-style strategy, to the partnership with his trainer and with his team, with Abel Sanchez, with Tom Loeffler. It all marked him out as unique. He was a well-marketed package, and it marketing worked because the raw material was there. And, frankly, he should be undefeated. In your opinion, and in the opinion of many. Um, <laughs> I like... Uh... Cause English, that's good. Right? Did you just come up with that uh, in preparation for this? I like to think I did. Yes. Yeah. All right. That that could catch on. Uh, I wish you'd come up with it like five years ago, Uh, (laughs) but uh, you you know, might not might not have too many more opportunities to use it. But yeah, it's a good term. So the case against Triple G should be fairly obvious to anyone who's paid close attention to his career and listened to the questions and the criticism he's fielded along the way until 2017. Who did he face? And then once he started facing top guys, how did he do against them? He looked like a monster against B-level and C-level opposition for years. Uh, Not his fault, of course, that some of the elite fighters and lineal champs like Sergio Martinez and Miguel Cotto chose not to fight him. 
But then he had these close fights against Daniel Jacobs and Canelo Alvarez and officially went 1-1-1. One, one, and one. And however you scored them, really all three fights were about even. And it's not crazy to wonder, you know, were the Triple G super fans overrating him a bit all along? Not a lot, certainly, but maybe just a bit. Uh, the counterpoint would be that he was ever so slightly past his prime by the time he got the big fights and was, in fact, as great as he looked prior to that. But in any case... When Golovkin was dominant and had his insane knockout streak going, you could do the Teddy Atlas against who against who routine. And then when he faced his toughest opponents, the dominance and the knockouts ended. So great fighter, great decade. But what's his defining win? If he gets a third fight with Canelo this fall and wins it, then that's it. But for now, he doesn't have one. And this is the case, and I think we'll probably say something similar for at least one or two of these other guys on the list. And it is one of the things, isn't it? If you're looking at not just the guys' Hall of Fame credentials or just whether they're good or whether they're a world champion, but their place in history, uh, no boxer, no matter how good they are, can do it by themselves. Um, mm. Every great fighter ultimately is measured by his great rivalry and how he, he does against that rivalry. And, and absent that... Absent the opportunity to showcase those talents. And there is every indication that, granted, it wasn't a particularly deep middleweight division while Gennady was rampaging through it. But there were plenty of people who decided that they didn't want to test themselves up against Gennady until there were signs of him sort of fading a little bit. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously that is particularly the case with Canelo Alvarez, who seemed to time his meeting with Gennady just absolutely perfectly. It's, it's With Golovkin, it's that interesting situation that, yeah, you've always got to have the right person to test yourself up against, but it seems like an awful lot of people were ready to wait uh, and find other excuses and find, like, hair appointments and other things to be done <laughs> instead of getting in the ring with Gennady at a time when he was at his peak. Right. Well, uh, Gennady was, to an extent, doing things by himself for a while. Uh, but next up is a guy who helped him out in a, in a way, not by being across the ring from yeah. him, but by sharing a lot of cards with him, uh, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez. Chocolatito won his first title belt in 2008 when he was 21, so a little bit of his dominance doesn't count toward this discussion. But at the dawn of the 2010s, he came in as a 105-pound champ. He would go on to win titles at 108, 112, and 115, and he was widely considered the best in each weight class during his time there. And he's that guy who should have been on pound for pound list sooner than he was, but most American fans and media just weren't fully aware of him until at least about 2012. In some cases, not until he started fighting regularly on US TV in 2015, all of which counts against him from a star power and impact perspective, but shouldn't count against his remarkable resume. Again, titles in four divisions. He took part in 17 title fights across those four weight classes this decade. He rose to the top of the pound-for-pound pound list. He went 23-2 and two with 19 knockouts for the decade, and one of the losses was a bad decision in the opinion of most. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not like Ricardo Lopez in the 90s where he barely fought anyone of note. Now, he didn't have a Canelo-like resume, but Chocolatito beat Juan Francisco Estrada, Brian Valoria, Akira Yegashi, Carlos Cuadras, and should have beaten Srisaket Sorung Visay in their first fight. And taking all the names and numbers out of it, just looking at the aesthetics, he was a beautiful fighter to watch. From an offensive perspective, he was the closest thing this decade to what Manny Pacquiao was in the prior decade. Uh, I'm sure you'll point out in the case against Chocolatito, 
that the decade hasn't ended well for him, that he was quote unquote only great for about 85% of the decade. But the same was true of Pernell Whitaker in the 90s. It's tough to have your 10 best years line up perfectly with a decade delineation. When he was on top, Chocolatito was as dominant as any fighter of the 2010s. Yeah, the problem with, with this exercise is it's a little bit like, um, you know, when baseball players and their teams go to arbitration and and the team really wants to pay a guy 25 million contract over a number of years because they think he's one of the absolute best, but he wants 32 million. And so they have to say in front of the arbitrators, <laughs> this guy sucks. Right. <laughs> doesn't, even though they don't believe it. But here you go. And it is, it's difficult. Chocolatito Gonzalez was a guy that, you know, absolutely at his peak, that absolutely raved over. It was so difficult to, you know, find much wrong with him. But of course, we're looking at, again, at a situation where it's not a question of how good he is, or whether he's legitimately good, or whether he's a Hall of Famer. It's what are the various factors that go into somebody being the fighter of the decade. And there's a little bit of the tree falling in the forest and if there's nobody there to hear him. Or does it matter if the people who are there to hear the tree falling in the forest are all Japanese and Nicaraguans? <laughs> um, that is, I think, probably the biggest problem with Chocolatito is that even as he was achieving what he was achieving at 105 and 108 and to some extent also at 112, even as he was building a cult... Uh, following uh, in the United States, as well as a fan base in places like Nicaragua and, and Japan. He wasn't necessarily putting on these great performances in front of large audiences. He wasn't necessarily uh, gaining a huge following. He wasn't necessarily getting huge attention. He wasn't really embodying the spirit of, of being one of the great fighters of the decade until 2015, and he arrived on HBO, and he put in some stellar performances that showed very clearly why he was regarded so highly, and yet, almost as soon as he arrived, almost as soon as he was finally getting the attention that he merited, he moved up to 115, and it just proved to be, even though he had some success there, a step too far, the pack began to catch up to him. And in 2017, two years after he first appeared on our screens, he had the first controversial loss to Sistraquette and followed that up with a real loss to Sistraquette. It's unfortunate. I think had he had the skills that he had, had he been as dominant as he had, at a larger weight class, he's the kind of guy who would have gotten the attention that he merited worldwide and not just relatively limited audience uh, much, much earlier. Uh, as it is, I don't think he spent enough time in the spotlight. And I'm very aware that this is an extraordinarily parochial argument to make. I'm completely aware of that, but it is part of the element of what it takes to be the fighter of the decade. He didn't spend enough time of his peak in a large enough spotlight to merit this particular crown. Yeah, uh, if you're going to poke a hole, uh, that's probably where you poke it with him. But uh, as you pointed out, we, we made things kind of tough on ourselves with this format. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. a it's a challenge to find cases against some of these guys. But as you, as you clarified, it's not that we're really making a case against them as fighters. We're making a case for why they wouldn't quite be the absolute number one fighter of the decade. That's all we're, that's all we're doing with our counter arguments. Exactly. So from the very teeny tiniest of guys on our list to the truly massive Vladimir Klitschko. He retired, if indeed he has retired, uh, with a record of 64-5 and five with 53 KOs and a lengthy and truly distinguished time atop the heavyweight division. After one reign from 2000 to 2003, he retooled and he went unbeaten from 2004 to 2015. He began this decade with a run of 11-0 and 0 with seven KOs 
defeating opponents who are still regarded as being at worst on the fringes of the heavyweight title picture, guys like Kubrat Pulev and Alexander Povetkin, as well as then-legitimate opponents such as David Hay, whom he absolutely dominated. And rarely during that spell was he even troubled. I mean, he absolutely dominated opponents with his jab and with his knockout power, making solid opponents look so inferior that the quality of his performances, that the skill and the ability that he brought to them was sometimes overlooked and granted the style that he deployed to be so dominant and so superior in those fights uh, also played a role in it. But look, the guy did his job and he was a true world champion. Um, during this decade, he fought. He, he had successful title defenses in Switzerland and Russia and Germany, as well as the United States. And he would go on to also fight in England in a tremendous losing effort in front of 90,000 people. And throughout all of that, and this can never be, I think, overstated, he went about his business with utter class. He was always supremely physically prepared. Uh, he was always a real gentleman. He was uh, a multilingual exponent of the sweet science. He was one of the most dominant heavyweight champions of all time. And he's already maybe been a little bit forgotten simply because I think partly because he was a world champion. He didn't fight in the United States a tremendous amount and partly because he wasn't necessarily the most exciting of heavyweight champions, but he was skillful and he was absolutely dominant. So I definitely rigged our outline to get myself the case against <laughs> Klitschko <laughs> um, because he's the one I believe in least, uh, which again, not, not, a, not a knock on him, but just out of this crew, uh, he was the one that I was going to have the easiest time making the case against, I felt. Uh, and uh, this week it fell on me to sort of put together our rundown. And uh, yeah, I, I rigged that. Uh, uh, and I guess this is all a bit of a spoiler that he isn't making my top three. I'm kind of giving that away here. But look, the numbers seemed great. Actually watching him rule over the heavyweight division, it wasn't quite as great as the numbers looked. You had a mix of some terrible challengers, uh, Jean-Marc Mormec, Francesco Pianetta, Alex Leopai, uh, and then some ugly wins against the more threatening challengers like Alexander Povetkin and David Hay. And then, of course, the abysmal loss to Tyson Fury to end his reign just past the midpoint of the decade. And Vladimir is definitely a victim of the way his career and the decade demarcations right. don't line up. If it was 2006 to 15, he'd fare better. But, you know, he was dominant over a bad heavyweight division for half the decade. He was, as you said, pure class, a great ambassador for boxing as a person but he was someone I was almost never excited to watch fight. And while it is fine to include him in this discussion, anyone who would actually give him strong consideration for being the fighter of the decade and not just a fringe contender for fighter of the decade, I'd have a hard time respecting that person's opinions. <laughs> yeah, it's fortunate that there maybe wasn't anybody else whose surname began with an E or a D to like completely ruin this whole setup. So that it all lined up perfectly, so that <laughs> K for Klitschko came your way. Yeah, look, it is, it is. He is definitely the more difficult guy to make a case for, not least because as I think the two issues really are the stylistic one, uh, the fact that we are all a lot more excited about the heavyweight division now than we were five or six years ago, um, and exactly like you said, the way that it didn't line up particularly well for him time-wise. But I do think he deserves some extra credit for 
the definitely the classy way that he represented the sport and the fact that he was definitely a true world champion. Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, staying in the same part of the globe in terms of uh, countries of origin, it's time for Vasily Lomachenko. And he's a tricky one as the only fighter under consideration who wasn't a professional boxer yet when the decade began. He missed almost the first four years of the decade before turning pro in October 2013. Now, he did win Olympic gold in 2012, his second gold medal, but that doesn't really count here, I don't think. Uh, And then he got out of the gate slow, losing his second pro fight. However, I'm happy to present that as a positive, an argument in his favor. In his second pro fight... He took on Orlando Salido, who barely tried to make weight, came in way bigger and stronger, threw a ton of low blows, and still, at the end of the fight, it was Lomachenko who had Salido on the verge of a knockout. And then you look at what Lomachenko has done since then. Titles in three divisions, ascension to the top of most pound-for-pound lists, and I know people tend to casually refer to Lomachenko and Terrence Crawford as 1 and 1A, as if they're interchangeable, but if you look at ESPN's pound-for-pound poll, right now, 9 out of 10 panelists have Lomachenko 1, Crawford 2. It's not such a coin flip. He outboxed Gary Russell Jr., he made Nicholas Walters quit, he made Guillermo Rigondeau quit, he moved up beyond his best weight and stopped Jorge Linares, People might wonder why we're giving Lomachenko consideration here, but not Crawford. And to me, it's about the quality of opposition. Crawford just doesn't have those names on his resume, like the ones I just ran down for Lomachenko. And Lomachenko, as I pointed out, not Crawford, is the best in the world right now, in my view, and in the view of most of those panelists. Uh, And yeah, he didn't turn pro until 2013. But he also didn't waste any time being maneuvered like a prospect once he did turn pro. He was facing championship-level guys from his second fight on. He had 13 fights this decade, and 12 of them were title fights. And those numbers are right in line with a lot of the fighters on this list in consideration for fighter of the decade. Yeah, look, again, this is a similar case to... Uh, what we were talking about earlier. I'm certainly someone who always struggles to make much of a case against Lomachenko. (laughs) Um, And like you, look, one might point to that defeat to Salido. Uh, I'm the same as you. I don't consider it a black mark. I consider it quite the opposite because he was fighting for a world title in his second pro fight against a veteran who missed weight and pounded him repeatedly in the testicles. (laughs) And Vasily still down nearly won the fight. So I don't think we can demand that fighters be great and then penalize them when they do uh, strive to be truly great. You know, I think if you had to make a case against him here, it's when you take a step back, you're like, who feels like they might be the fighter of the decade? And it doesn't feel that way for Lomachenko, even if you feel he's the best fighter in the world, even if you feel that he's been the best fighter for a couple of years. And I think partly because when you're looking at fighters of the decade, even though it's completely arbitrary measurement, you know, it takes guys a while to fully build up that head of steam. No matter how many title fights they're in, no matter how many good guys they're facing, it takes a while before people really catch on to how good they are, before they truly get that following, before they truly start getting into those big fights. And I think one of the things with Lomachenko is, and again, this is a case that this is through no fault of his own, really, because by and large, with a few exceptions, he's been something of a solo performer, largely waiting for any kind of defining fight. Part of that is because his skill level is so much greater than anybody else that he's made pretty decent guys, guys like Nicholas Walters, look absolutely second rate. Made Gary Russell look absolutely second rate. Gary Russell's a really good boxer. 
And it's only in the last year or two, and we've discussed this before, we discussed it with Brian Campbell as to what the reasons are, whether it's because he's now at a weight limit that is perhaps his absolute limit. Maybe now he's sort of gone past that superhuman peak and is maybe a little bit more human. Or just maybe now is the time where he's more likely to meet better fighters or fighters who are closer to him. Only now is he in the point where he's finally starting to get what could be those kind of defining fights. And again, one of those things where it's not his fault by any means, and his dominance to some extent works against him. But it feels to me as if he's only now building up the kind of head of steam, only now building up the kind of big fight opportunities that would put him in the kind of consideration if we were to ever look back as being a kind of fighter of the decade type. It's just the case of getting that momentum going. And even though there are hardcore who always really appreciated Lomachenko, it's taken that little bit of time inevitably for him to build up that case. And I don't know that he's quite had enough time. Like you mentioned, he didn't turn pro until 2013. As determinedly as he went at it from the beginning, I'm not quite sure that he's had a long enough run at it to be able to be in that conversation. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the feel argument, but that's a good one. That applies here. You you look at this decade, and it just doesn't feel like this decade belonged to Vasily Lomachenko. Yeah, yeah. Well, now this next guy, on the other hand, is a very interesting uh, argument to be made. Uh, there's certainly no doubting his legacy. Uh, as you mentioned at the top of this exercise, Floyd Mayweather Jr. was already under serious consideration for the fighter of the previous decade. Uh, and when Manny Pacquiao got the award from uh, BWAA, I think, uh, for the fighter of the decade last decade, uh, Floyd was pretty upset about it. Um, <laughs> not least because after far too many years of waiting, he then ultimately faced off against Pacquiao in 2015 and defeated him handily in the highest grossing fight of all time. Look, in this decade alone... Mayweather defeated, sure, certain, I think, future Hall of Famers Shane Mosley, Miguel Cotto, Canelo Alvarez, and Manny Pacquiao, as well as the likes of Victor Ortiz, Marcus Maidana, Robert Guerrero, and Andre Berto. Um, And that was only being active for half of the decade. It is testament to the manner in which he dominated, and to some extent, still dominates the sport. That even a hint that he might consider coming out of retirement, gets him all kinds of column inches and gets social media in a froth. Um, The fact that he can earn a ton of money and earned uh, publicity uh, just by showing up in Japan and beating up an undersized kickboxer in an exhibition. We don't really need to make the case again. It's been made many times about Floyd's skills, uh, about his natural ability, about his phenomenal work ethic, about his peerless self-promotional abilities. If... It's difficult to feel that Vasily Lomachenko is the fighter of the decade, that this isn't a Lomachenko era. You can't say the same about Floyd Mayweather, who even in retirement remains absolutely the dominant figure in the sport right now. Yep. Uh, That said, it's no mystery what the case against Floyd is. He was retired for most of the second half of the decade. He only fought 10 times in the 2010s, not counting exhibitions against kickboxers from Kramer's karate class. Uh, he, (laughs) He only scored two knockouts all decade. And one of those came against the fighter making his pro boxing debut, Conor McGregor. The other came when his opponent was trying to kiss him on the cheek and apologize for the 17th time. Mayweather also had some great wins, some meaningful wins. Make no mistake, you listed some of the opponents. But 
can you be the fighter of the decade in a decade in which you're a part-time fighter? He was the moneymaker of the decade, the boxing businessman of the decade. He was in some ways the most important fighter of the decade. But in terms of the -the in-the-ring numbers, there's a pretty strong case for not giving Floyd much consideration. All right, we are at our seventh and final contender. It's Andre Ward. And the numbers are, admittedly, a little Floyd-like. Only 11 fights, only three knockouts, no losses, like Floyd. There was a long period of inactivity. There were a few weak opponents. There was a retirement announcement before the decade was over. But what Andre Ward did in the ring during his dominant period at the start of the decade and then again in his final two fights, it's Hall of Fame stuff, and it might just be fighter of the decade stuff. His Super 6 tournament run began in November 2009, so the Mikkel Kessler fight doesn't count toward this decade. But then he dominated the Super 6, four more wins culminating in a victory over likely Hall of Famer Carl Frotch that made him the 2011 Fighter of the Year. He followed that with a dominant knockout win over reigning light heavyweight champion Chad Dawson to, in my opinion, ascend to the top of the pound-for-pound list. Some inactivity followed. The next four years were, if not entirely wasted, then at least not totally productively spent. But (laughs) then he finished his career with two wins over a prime Sergei Kovalev, The first one was controversial, but what a brilliant second half of that fight by Ward getting off the deck Mm -hmm. against a real puncher and taking over the fight down the stretch to at least make it close enough to steal. And then in the rematch, he stopped Kovalev in many ways, the best win of Ward's career, cementing him as the pound for pound best at the time. And then he walked away at 32, something to be admired. It's very easy to look at this decade from 2010 to 2019 and say that Andre Ward was the best fighter over the longest stretch of time across those 10 years. Yeah, uh, and I think the the one case to be made here against Andre, and you touched on this, is that for so long he seemed intent on torpedoing his own career and damaging his own legacy. Uh, what damage is done to Andre uh, over this last decade was entirely self-inflicted. Um, just as he was hitting his stride, uh, as you mentioned, with the Super 6 victory and the win over Chad Dawson, just as he was where he really wanted to be, atop the pound-for-pound, pound, ready to make that next move, he basically sat out the bulk of the next four years, um, lacing them up on just two occasions as he wound down his promotional contract, getting into a spat with Dan Goosen that to this day, nobody knows what on earth it was about. Um, <laughs> and when he did come back, you know, you could argue that he finished with a little bit of good fortune. As you said, he, he might well have lost that first fight with Sergei Kovalev, uh, sensational as his second half comeback in that fight was and arguably scored a victory courtesy of a lot of testicular uppercuts in the rematch (laughs) um for all his undoubted skills his style was not necessarily one that always caught on with people it was it could sometimes be an acquired taste it sometimes required a a degree of understanding of what you were watching in there it wasn't so very obviously uh flashily brilliant uh, uh in the way that some guys like say for example Gennady Golovkin was and he rarely made the effort to endear himself any further to fans either. He wasn't necessarily the guy who was going to go out there and do that media work or necessarily talk himself up in any particular way. He's a, he's once you get to know him, he's, he's an enjoyable guy, but he's not necessarily one to put himself out there. And so maybe again, you know, there'll be a lot of boxing fans would certainly appreciate 
Andre Ward. But say in the 80s, uh, you mentioned Sugar Ray Leonard and Mike Tyson. You ask a non-boxing fan who those guys were, they would know. Ask a non-boxing fan about Andre Ward, would they know who he is? I'm not so certain. Hmm. So that's twice you've mentioned testicles on this pod, uh, and twice that I've giggled like an eight-year-old when you did. So Says everything for both of us. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> all right, so that's our top seven. Who, after all of that, makes our top three? Look, I found this really tough, mm-hmm. actually. At first, I thought, oh, this is a fun exercise when you first <laughs> suggested it. That could be a larf. And, and then I actually felt the pressure was on actually cutting it down to three. It is difficult. Um, It's a tough call. Everyone has a mark or two against them, as we've made clear. It's pretty crowded at the top. Uh, And as you mentioned, there's still nine months to change things all around. I reserve the right to completely change the order of my top three, (laughs) even if it remains the same top three people, and even if none of them ever throw another punch. Um, So I will say this. I haven't included Floyd in my top three for that reason that you brought up. Simply the fact that he was... A fighter of a half decade um you know and i'm not including the conor mcgregor attention nonsenses there uh, maybe even just another year or two of dominance would be very hard to make a case against him so here's where i am right now with not a huge amount of certainty my number three right now is gennady golovkin uh going into the kell brook contest in late 2016 i would have thought he was well on course to be number one but you touched on this um my, he, you know, he had mild struggles for a couple of rounds against Brooke there. Then he had a very close win against Daniel Jacobs. And yet an inability to completely separate himself from Canelo uh, suggests that either he was not quite as good as he appeared or he's as good as he's going to be. Um, and we've seen peak of him. So number two for now, but with a very real shot at being number one. Um, if anyone is going to make a difference over the next nine months, it's this guy. And that's Canelo Alvarez. Mm. Um I'm not really going to count the 2013 Mayweather loss against him a great deal. Floyd was at his peak and willingly picked him, picked Alvarez, because he knew that Canelo wasn't ready. He deliberately went in there before before Alvarez had, had matured. Um, yes, some of his wins have been close and controversial, but that's what happens when you consistently take on the best. Um, and Canelo has absolutely 100% done that. If he beats Daniel Jacobs in May and then meets and beats without controversy Golovkin in September, I think he probably vaults to the top of this list. In fact, almost certainly does. But for all that I just said in terms of making the case against him, I think for now, for me, the position at the top is held by Andre Ward. Yeah, he didn't have the breakout crossover appeal of Triple G or Canelo. Skill set was sublime. Uh, he comfortably beat some very, very good uh, opposition, as you noted. Um, he's the only one under consideration, apart from Floyd, to um, re- remain undefeated during this decade and to even retire undefeated. Um, only Sergey Kovalev ever really came close to beating him, and Andre retired on his own terms at the top of his game. All right, this is interesting. Uh, we don't have the exact same top three, so that's good. We can breathe a sigh of relief. I was a little nervous, but uh, this is really interesting how this shook down. Um, I'll just note off the top, you know Vladimir Klitschko isn't in my top three. I made that pretty <laughs> clear, and it was pretty easy for me to cross off Lomachenko, too, uh, if we aren't counting amateur accomplishments. From there, it got really tough for me. Uh, let's jump right to my top three, and I had a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble separating Golovkin and Canelo, just as I did when they fought each other and I scored both fights draws. Uh, But I'm going with Canelo Alvarez as my number three 
because of the star power. That counts for something to me here, and just the sheer volume of big fights against top opponents. He was the guy who kept boxing in the headlines month after month, kept cranking out fights that felt like events. Um, And to echo what you just said, it is absolutely possible for Canelo to climb from number three on my list to number one on my list if he beats Danny Jacobs and then wins a third fight with Golovkin this year. My top three are close enough that he can definitely make that leap. At number two, I have your number one, Andre Ward. Uh, Before I sat down to examine this closely, I was thinking he'd be my number one, but I had forgotten just how long he was MIA in there. Between 2012 and 2016, he had some long layoffs, and he fought Edwin Rodriguez, Paul Smith, Sullivan Barrera, and Alexander Brand. Barrera and Rodriguez are both fine, but... When you combine that stretch with being retired for all of 2018 and 2019, he really only has about a half-decade resume. That half-decade is great, but I only make him number two. My number one is another guy who also has about a half-decade resume, but I think it's at least as good as Ward's on paper, and when you add in the money he generated and the way he crossed over into the mainstream, he's as recognizable a boxer as there's been since Mike Tyson I'm, of course, talking about Floyd Mayweather. And the names are there. He beat Manny Pacquiao in the biggest fight ever. Miguel Cotto, Shane Mosley, and perhaps most importantly for this discussion, Floyd has the dominant near shutout win over Canelo. I can't ignore that when considering their respective candidacies. Again, Canelo could maybe overcome that with a Fighter of the Year campaign in 2019. But for now, with very mixed feelings about it, And I completely understand why you didn't have him in your top three at all. I think Floyd Mayweather is the fighter of the decade in a decade in which he wasn't really in his absolute prime as a boxer. That probably came last decade. Uh, But as odd as it feels to give this to him, for me, when I shake things out, I have him at the very top of the list uh, with star power and the way he drove the sport, and as you said, continues to drive the sport in retirement, kind of being the deciding factors for me. Yeah, it gets back to that, how does it feel, right? Who feels like he's the boxer of the decade? And I think, yeah, when you take that step back, I decided not to include him, like I said, simply because he'd been retired for so long. But it is a fair point when you like actually match up the amount of time in the ring next to, say, Andres, there's really not that much difference. I suspect... When all is said and done, and once we have the the advantage of a little bit of time and a little bit of perspective, that there's probably, out of our list of seven, there's going to be a couple who are going to feel as if they were the fighter of the decade. And I wouldn't be surprised if we come back here in nine months and it's a, we just, after reflection, it's a choice between what Floyd did in the first half and what Canelo did in the rest of it. Um, both mm-hmm. of those, I think, are the ones that perhaps are making the most case for it to be their era. Or, or in the case of where you shook down what Floyd and Andre, e- either one of them did in about half a decade versus what Canelo right. ended up doing when all was said and done. So, yeah, this discussion is not quite over yet. <laughs> exactly. I suspect we'll be hearing something about it from some people <laughs> as well. Maybe. There might be some opinions. <laughs> All righty, let's uh, move on a little bit. Uh, Let's zoom in, shall we, from the fighter of the decade debate 
to the heavyweight of the moment debate. Uh, it's a three-fighter field. One of them, Deontay Wilder, as we've mentioned, made big news on Tuesday when he decided not to take long-term multi-fight offers from ESPN or DAZN and chose to stay with Showtime on a fight-by-fight arrangement. And on May 18th, on Showtime, not on Showtime pay-per-view, Wilder will face mandatory challenger Dominic Brazil at Barclay Center in Brooklyn. Um, before we welcome our guest, Eric, this is something you and I haven't shared our opinions on yet since we were mostly just asking Steven Espinosa questions on Tuesday. Uh, for obvious reasons, we're both pleased that Deontay is staying with Showtime, but were you surprised at all that this is how it shook out? Maybe a little bit, because we're all conditioned to expect everyone to just go for the money. Uh, whatever is the biggest financial offer right in front of you. I mean, how many stories have we heard of Don King showing up with a duffel bag full of cash and getting a deal <laughs> done? We assume that if one offer is a million dollars and another offer is a million and one dollars, the million and one dollar offer wins. And we don't know the true financials of any of these offers, by the way. But we were led to believe that over however many fights, the DAZN offer was enormous and the Showtime or Showtime pay-per-view offer would be smaller. Not to mention DAZN can deliver Anthony Joshua for Deontay eventually. And ESPN can deliver Tyson Fury for him eventually. So even though we didn't really know the numbers, the general sense was that these offers were worth more money over the long haul. And even though Deontay has loyalty to PBC and to Showtime, he's probably going in one of these other directions. That's what we were thinking. So it was surprising. But when Steven Espinoza explained it to us, it made Mm -hmm. sense. Deontay doesn't want long-term contracts. He believes in himself. And he wants to go fight to fight and have flexibility and the freedom to keep making the best decision for himself from one fight to the next. And because Steven knows him and the people at PBC and Showtime know him, they had a certain advantage. And I guess that the other folks competing for Deontay's services don't know him as well and didn't understand what he was looking for. So in retrospect, knowing that, it doesn't seem surprising at all that his next fight is on Showtime in the moment. Yeah, I was surprised. Happy, but surprised. Uh, How about you? (laughs) Yeah, look, honestly, everything and nothing has surprised me over these past few weeks. Um, So I was shocked by the Tyson Fury announcement. And since then, honestly, um, with everything that's gone back and forth, almost any scenario would have made sense and been entirely believable and, in hindsight, predictable in context. Um, But Deontay, yeah, look, he does seem like he's that independent spirit. Um, And for all that, you know, a a fair number of fans are berating him for his choice, sort of saying that he's turning down huge amounts of money to avoid Anthony Joshua. I think I wonder if part of it and I'm sure we'll have the chance to talk to him about this um, as well. I wonder if he looked at the zone and saw that AJ was the top dog there and he looked at ESPN and saw that Fury was the top dog there. And figured he didn't really want to get trapped in any medium to long term deal in which his potential rival was already established as the house fighter. Hmm. Um, you know, honestly, that's actually why I was a little bit surprised that in the end, Gennady Golovkin signed with DAZN, given how he felt already about <laughs> Canelo having all the advantages, you know, right. in their rivalry to this point. So, um, so yeah, given. Uh, in the end, am I surprised? I don't know. I've, I've long given up about being surprised about any of this, but it makes sense. Like you said, in hindsight, and especially after talking to Steven, it, um, it all makes sense. Uh, but it ain't over yet. There's a fair few more twists and turns left in this tale before it all, uh, before it all reaches a conclusion, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, to further illuminate this conversation about Deontay Wilder and his immediate and long-range future, uh, we now welcome to the podcast his manager, a 2010 inductee of the International Boxing Hall of Fame, Shelley Finkel. Shelley, thank you very much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Very welcome. I am glad that we're able to do it. So, look, when we spoke to Stephen Espinosa on Tuesday, right after the uh, the announcement, um, he told us that it was about five days or so before the announcement that he started to feel fairly confident that Deontay was staying, at least for now, with Showtime. Um, at what point, as far as you're aware, was Deontay's mind, in fact, made up about that? About five days before. Oh. <laughs> When we left the meeting on that Wednesday with the zone, was there something about that meeting that you came away from? Think, did you come away from that meeting with the zone then with a different impression than the one that you went into it with? Did you perhaps go in there thinking maybe that was where they were going to end up? Did something go wrong in that meeting, or did you just not feel a very good vibe from those guys? Well, the um, meeting was to find out if it was something we were going to do. And after the meeting, we were confident that that wasn't what we were going to do. Mm. And um, we heard them out. It was a very substantial offer. John was um, very gracious in the presentation, but... um, it wasn't what um, we felt was in the um, best um, career move for um, Deontay. John Skipper obviously had formerly been the head of ESPN. He made a presentation of why we should be going with him. Um, and we didn't think at this moment it was the best career moves. Um, a couple of writers have said, well, you would have made this, you would have made that. And I said, under the deal with the zone, the first fight was going to be against Dominic Brazil. So that's what we're doing right now. Hmm. And by doing it on Showtime, there'll be a lot bigger audience watching it. After the fight, which I assume Deontay will prevail, and if he does... There's no one who doubts. I can still go across the street and say, John, let's have a meeting. We decided we want to fight Joshua next. Mm. So um, we didn't lose anything. And now we're free and open to do anything we want. And if we decide the next fight is Joshua, you could bet on it. We'll get a better deal than we were offered the So that meeting with DAZN, uh, in the build-up to that, there were all these rumors out there, uh, you know, secret meetings, Ludabella involved in brokering meetings. And uh, there was just a, a frenetic pace to all the behind the scenes stuff going on and rumors getting out and, and people not sure quite what to believe. From your perspective, just how frenetic was everything behind the scenes over these last few weeks? Well, it was starting with Fury. We thought we had a deal for the rematch. And then Top Rank came, made him an offer, and he decided to go that route, which I don't blame him. It's his choice. And that put us a little bit in a um, spin. What are we going to do? The same as a year ago, 
when we thought that if we took a $15 million flat, we would get the Joshua fight, and we didn't. So Fury decides to go this way. Some things go on behind the scenes, and we have a meeting with the zone. And in the meantime, morning and night, Al and I were on the phone mapping our strategy, what we felt was best for Deontay. We walked into the meeting very well prepared, and the proposal that was laid out did not um, meet the goals we want for Deontay at present. He, um, he strikes me, Deontay, has been a pretty savvy kind of guy, and, and I'm wondering what it's like to, to work with him in, in, in this kind of situation. Is he, is he somebody who, you know, from the get-go knows pretty much what he wants? Is he the kind of guy who's like, Shelley, what's, what do you think we should do? Were you guys in lockstep? Were you having to persuade him one way or the other? Um, uh, how, how does it work with a guy like Deontay? Um, he is phenomenal. Mm. And um, he um, and I have been together almost 12 years now. I was with him in the amateurs. And um, funny, like yesterday, um, I said to him, Al and I joke to ourselves, you know, these two old geezers did pretty well. <laughs> he, says, he said, these two old geezers and this country boy from Alabama. I said, you're right. <laughs> so um, it's really a team effort. We go over everything. We explain what we believe. And, you know, during the um, time when Eddie was just, you know, Whatever. Um, as a matter of fact, I met um, Barry at his dad last June, mm -hmm. and I said, Barry, and I go back 30 years with Barry. I said, Barry, I thought I would have heard from you by now. And he said, why? Because you would call me and apologize for your son's immaturity. But <laughs> he, you know, didn't um, go for that. But he was, you know, he understood. And the time during that whole thing when, it, you know, Eddie with his silliness, um, Deontay and I laughed about it. And it, it he thinks, Eddie, that that um, endears him or that that helps him. It furthers the distance. I think that he believed he had the only game in town with Joshua and you have to do what I say or you get nothing. And for a little while in time, that was so. It's not that way anymore. Mm. And when we wanted to make the fight with Fury, the first one, we did whatever within reason it was to make it. We didn't um, say, well, we're the champ. You got to take less because we knew we wouldn't get a fight. So we did what was necessary. And if Eddie and Joshua really, really wanted to make it, they put their egos, check it at the door, and sit down and make a deal. Just before the Canelo fight, Eddie um, said, look, we'll offer you. I said, no, no. I said, the Eddie Anthony show is over. <laughs> I said, if you want to make a deal, we sit down and we figure out how to maximize the revenue, and then we'll decide what the split is. 
But anything short of that, we have no interest. We're not going to be indentured to you. He thinks about it. He said, okay. <laughs> Three days later, Joshua's in town for the Canelo fight. Look, I offered him Wembley. I offered him. I said, no one asked him to offer us anything. <laughs> Sit down and see if a deal can be made. And he's saying, I'm in stone April 13th. If it's not you, we're going with someone else. You remember all this. Yeah. April 13th is coming in about three weeks. And from what I see, Wembley is empty and it's not including <laughs> Joshua. So, um, you know, I've been around a long time. I guess I've been around in boxing almost as long as Eddie has been on this earth. And hopefully I've learned a few things. And I go into something with the approach, I want to make it happen. Otherwise, I wouldn't waste my time with it. Right. And... A lot of the antics were not necessary. They did not um, invoke love. And if you saw Eddie's latest rant, he's ranting about something incorrectly. I wouldn't rant anyway, but he is. What was said was, we believe that when Deontay knocks out Joshua, there wouldn't be a second fight automatically because we believe that Eddie and Matchroom would not let that happen because it would ruin them in that they couldn't rehabilitate him getting knocked out twice. Mm. The next thing I'm reading, go ruin us. I'm ready. Destroy us. You think you can put Matchroom? I mean, the guy is like emotional, out of control, and he's yelling about something incorrectly. I have no interest in putting him out of business. I'd like him to, you know, just go in a different way. But um, I had a conversation with Skipper after the meeting, and I said, John, believe it or not, I hope you succeed. Because in the music business, I came to a philosophy. If something was good for the music business, I'm smart enough. I'll figure out how to make it good for Shelley. <laughs> and I believe that the more people that are watching boxing, and of course you want quality, I don't mean junk, and the more it's on and the more people are talking about it, the better it is for the sport, the better it is for Shelly. And, um, you know, that's just the way it is. <laughs> so uh, the the third member of the big three at, at heavyweight right now, we were just talking about Deontay and Joshua, but to get back to, to Fury you were so close to signing for a Fury rematch and then he pulled the rug out from under you and went to top rank. You just said a few minutes ago that you don't blame him. Can you give us a sense of Deontay's emotional state, how pissed off he was at Fury, if at all, when that went down? He was annoyed, but Deontay has an amazing sixth sense. And he believed, and he told me, he says, I don't think he's fighting me right now. Hmm. Huh. I said, why do you believe that? He says, I just don't believe it. He said, um, we'll see. And he wasn't as ex um, emotionally invested as I was this time because I was pretty confident it was going to happen. And it didn't. And we said, look, we'll move on. I said, yeah. um, hopefully we'll get it next. And he said, okay. He said, I told you. 
I said, definitely, you told me, and you were right. Wow. But I've been in touch with his camp a lot over the last couple of weeks, and I'm hopeful that um, it'll happen early next year. Uh, okay, that kind of feeds into what I was going to ask. Um, you know, as you mentioned already, you know, all these, all three of these guys have have spring fights to get through. But if they do win, where is your level of optimism about either the Fury rematch happening or Joshua happening? Uh, which would you rate as being a bit more likely? It sounds like probably you think maybe the Fury rematch might be the bit more likely, or are you op- open to just seeing how things fall at this point? Um, open to how they fall, but in the sequence of things. And my own belief, I think the Fury fight will happen first. Okay. All right, so before we let you go, we want to ask you about one other so fight. So quick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, we have, a, we have a schedule to keep here, but, uh, but we, do, we, oh, do still, right. <laughs> we do still want to ask you I'm about... I'm glad you squeezed me in. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, now you're a man who can get uh, Al Heyman on the phone at the drop of a hat. If, if, if you could do that for us, we'll keep you on as long as you want. <laughs> but uh, but, but uh, in any case... you're asking for miracles. Go exactly. <laughs> Um, so we we want to ask you about one other fighter, one other noteworthy sure. heavyweight. Uh, you served as an advisor to Vladimir Klitschko. Uh, we've all yes. heard the buzz that Vladimir has been considering a comeback. Can you shed any light on how seriously he's thinking about that? I do not firsthand have any um, knowledge of it. Him and I spoke, yes, about a month ago when it first surfaced. I didn't bring it up. He didn't bring it up. And, um, look, it it could be what I do remember very distinctly after the fight with, um, Joshua. And by the way, no disrespect to anyone else. I believe if Emmanuel Stewart was in his corner, he would have knocked out Mm. Joshua that night. Hmm. But that be that what it may, we were in the locker room and he was pacing around. He came over to me. I really trained hard for this. I said, yes, you did. I said, let me ask you, because we had to write in a contract for a rematch. I said, what would you do different? He looked at me, and he had no answer. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's why he didn't take the rematch, because it was a lot of money, and most fighters would have taken Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And um, he's one of the few fighters, and maybe athletes, who you saved and invested his money wisely. Yeah. And um, for, you know, it's hard to say um, if or how he um, views his legacy at this point and if he feels that he has to fight again to redeem something. Um, I think... Um, He had an incredible career. I feel early in his career, by being as smart as he is, he overthought things, and that made him tense. Mm. And that's why he got stopped in a few fights earlier. But then when he fought um, the Nigerian nightmare. um, Sam Sam Peter. Peter. Yeah. Sam Peter, and Peter put him down three times, but he got up. And Emmanuel being in the corner mentally got him to overcome hey he knocked you down no big deal right and i think a similar thing happened 
in the fight with Joshua. He got dropped, what, the fourth round or so? Mm. He got up. He wasn't wobbled like he had been from lesser punches and lesser things. Mm-hmm. And he um, somehow came back, hit him with a right that for two rounds um, Joshua had didn't recover from. It's just that the um, Vladimir didn't press it. If he had pressed it, I believe he would have stopped him. And I know I can picture Emmanuel screaming, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that after the fight. There's no way that he would have let Vladimir go out and just jab him to death for two rounds after that. He'd have been pounding yeah. on his chest in the corner, telling him to get that, you know, get him out of there. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So um, it was, he at least, um, his last fight was dignity. And at that moment, he retired on his terms because he could afford again if he wanted to. And he decided not to. And up until that fight, he um, ran his own ship. I was part of the steering wheel for him, but he Mm -hmm. ran it. He didn't have to answer to anyone except to himself and his advisors telling him what to do. Myself, John Hornauer, and a few other people. No. All right. Look, Shelley, thank you very much for your time, for giving us some info on, on, on two of the best heavyweights of the last several years that we really appreciate appreciate your insight we'll see you in brooklyn in about six Great. weeks or so um Eight weeks until, from today and, there you go. But who's counting? You there you go. two weeks earlier and <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. I like <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so then look thanks very much indeed for joining us have a show. good rest of your weekend you too thanks shelly bye Before we get to the news, uh, let's dip quickly into the Showtime Boxing Podcast mailbag. Remember that you can send us questions or comments via Twitter using the hashtag AskShowPod. That's A-S-K-S-H-O-P-O-D. And we got one worthy mailbag question this week. Uh, Actually, we got a second one that I liked uh, shortly before recording, uh, but we'll save that for next week. The one we'll use this week pivots nicely off the heavyweight situation we were just discussing with Shelly, uh, and it was clearly written with you in mind, Kieran. So I'll ask it, and you can answer it. It comes from Ruby, uh, Twitter handle, at Stacy Ruby. She says, hello, folks. I love your show. What is more likely to happen in 2019? Fury versus Joshua, Joshua versus Wilder, Wilder versus Fury, Liverpool wins Champions League or Liverpool wins the Premier League? Amazing work. Keep it up. Um, Okay. Well, first of all, great question. Can't believe you actually have to ask. But um, clearly, Liverpool Football Club is going to win both the Premier League and the Champions League. Uh, That's an absolute given. So, uh, but if you don't want to be mildly objective about it, Liverpool is two points ahead in the Premier League with seven games to go. It's in the quarterfinals of the Champions League against facing arguably the weakest of the final eight teams. So you have to feel they've at least got a shot. Meanwhile, um, you know, Bob Arum recently told World Boxing News categorically that Fury Wilder won't happen in 2019. We just had Shetty Finkel saying that he thinks maybe it'll happen in early 2020. Right. And he's more optimistic about that than about Wilder against Joshua. And I don't see Joshua against Fury happening no. at all. <laughs> at all. So um, money's got to be on Liverpool. If you're a smart person, you're putting your money on Liverpool Football Club, <laughs> which you should be doing anyway. Okay. So, when you first started answering it, I could not tell if you were if there was sarc like I don't know the reality of whether Liverpool is any good. Uh, so I don't I didn't know if you were being sarcastic or serious or what. But I guess they are actually good. 
it's the greatest football team in the world, Eric. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Clearly, you're you're entirely unbiased on the matter. Right. Completely. It, completely. It's a shame that the question wasn't framed as those same three fights and the Phillies winning the World Series, because then I would have had something to right. say. But alas, uh, it was about soccer, so uh, go Pele. Uh, bend it like Beckham. Hurrah! How was that? Very good. Do I sound like a serious soccer fan? No. <laughs> I guess not. Oh, well. <laughs> All right, let's let's wrap it up with a couple of news items. Uh, First, some news that doesn't really require any commentary, but it's worth passing along. Uh, Jamel Charlo was acquitted in a Dallas courtroom on Wednesday of two counts of domestic violence against his ex-girlfriend. He maintained his innocence throughout. He turned down a plea deal, preferring to try to clear his name, and he was, in fact, found not guilty. Uh, We can't possibly know what did or didn't happen. Um, but he did prevail in court, Charlo, and the former junior middleweight title holder can now get back to focusing on his boxing career. Um, in news that is worth weighing in on, the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame announced its class of 2019 this week, and there are 16 new inductees. We won't list them all, but notables include Bernard Hopkins, Juan Manuel Marquez, Winky Wright, Chiquita Gonzalez, Wayne McCulloch, Floyd Mayweather Sr. as a trainer, and the late promoter uh, Dan Goosen. Uh, any names stand out to you there out of, uh, out of all of those guys? Well, this is a nice warm-up for B-Hop and Marquez, who, of course, will both enter the International Boxing Hall of Fame the first moment they're eligible. Um, so this is a little test run for them with Hall of Fames. Uh, it's also cool for some of the people who live in Nevada and get yeah. in in that Nevada resident category where the bar is maybe a little lower, like Wayne McCullough and Hasim Rahman, uh, neither of whom has a real shot at Canastota, probably. So it's cool for them to get to experience this. Uh, and I'll also note that Dan Goosen was a close friend of our friend Rich Murata's. I think they went to the same high school, if I'm remembering correctly. That's right. Um, yeah. And Rich is the founder of the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame, and he runs these induction ceremonies every year. And Rich likes to tell the story that he was told he was the 11th Goosen, uh, only to find out that there are about a dozen other people who were told they were the 11th Goosen. So I fully expect to hear a debate about the identity of the 11th Goosen come up at this Hall of Fame induction. Uh, but congrats to all the inductees. Uh, induction weekend is August 9th and 10th, a great opportunity uh, for fans to mingle with the legends. Yeah, I was actually involved a little bit in the first couple of uh, uh, induction ceremonies with with the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame, helping Rich out there a little bit. And uh, they're just tremendous fun. I mean, I think any sort of regional or local Hall of Fame is great. But the Nevada one, of course, because of Las Vegas, because there's such a great fight community there. Really, really good fun. And they're very, very open to the fans. Like you said, it's a great opportunity for fans to uh, to mingle with with some of the uh, real greats. So, uh, yeah, that should be a lot of fun. Congrats to all of those involved. Yeah. All right. In other news, uh, as seems to happen, oh, every two weeks or so since we joined Showtime and started this podcast, a notable former super middleweight title holder is retiring. Uh, Lucien Boutet, who last fought in February 2017, and we might have assumed he was already retired, made it official this week, finishing with a record of 32 and 5, 25 KOs, with four of his five losses coming in his last five fights. But he was undefeated through his first 30 including perhaps his most memorable fight, a highly controversial win over Librado Andrade in 2008. Doesn't feel that long ago, but apparently it was. And for anyone who hasn't seen that fight, look it up on YouTube and watch the 12th round. That is some wild stuff. Uh, Kieran, any thoughts on Lucien Boutet and his legacy? First of all, 
classy guy always really polite always happy to give an interview uh, always happy to to acknowledge fans and take photographs with fans and spend time with him uh, fun fact he and well fun fact for me nobody else but um <laughs> he and jean pascal were my very first interviews when i took on the role of digital reporter for hbo back in january mm-hmm. 2014 the Butte pascal fight was the very first fight that i covered in that way for hbo um and look Butte had some Really good skills. Uh, and it was because he was such a legitimately good boxer that the way in which Carl Frotch just walked through him was such a significant and meaningful win uh, for Frotch. Um, and there was that was kind of a little bit of an arc on Butte. As good as he could be offensively, uh, that chin of his could be dinged. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Labrado Andrade nearly pulling it off uh, in 2008. Um, Frotch then doing it. Um, yeah, Al- Elio de Alvarez finally, finally finishing him off in Butte's last fight. Um, he probably fought on a few years too long, as so many did. Like you said, four of his five defeats uh, come in, in his last five fights. But a very good fighter. Not a Hall of Famer, but definitely in the Hall of Very Good and, uh, and a class act. Yep. All right. And we'll finish the podcast with this coming weekend's fights. There are two cards on DAZN on Saturday with Liam Smith versus Sam Eggington headlining a card from London earlier in the day, and then Ryan Garcia fighting Jose Lopez in Indio, California. And also on Saturday on ESPN, Oleksandr Gvozdik defends the lineal light heavyweight title uh, from my hometown of Philadelphia, taking on Dudu Ngumbu, one of the all-time great boxing names for anyone who still has a hint, has a hint of their eight-year-old self lingering inside them, as Which we know I do. Which would <laughs> yes. Based on uh, you saying testicles and me giggling, now Dudu Ngumbu elicits the same response. Uh, other than the opportunity to say Dudu Ngumbu and chuckle at it, anything else uh, you're looking forward to among these fights, Kieran? Yeah, I'm a little bit interested in, in Smith versus Eggington. Um, I think uh, Liam, who is a Liverpool fan and thus inherently superior, uh, should have <laughs> too much for Sam Eggington, who's uh, a bit of an overachiever, uh, put in a tremendous effort, but I don't think has the skill set uh, of quite the class of, of Liam Smith. Uh, I always enjoy watching Alexander Wojcik. We talked recently about, uh, about this sort of shifting landscape at the top of the light heavyweight division, and obviously he's a really important player there. Um, and the progress of... Ryan Garcia is always worth watching. Um, there is, has of late been a little bit of a word on the street that he, he could stand to stop reading his own press clippings a little bit um, if he's to realize his full potential. But uh, Ryan Garcia, an undeniably talented guy with, with a lot of potential. So he's certainly worth keeping an eye on. All right, look, that will do it. Remember to send questions to us over Twitter at hashtag AskShowPod, ask S-H-O-P-O-D. We will be back again next week to preview the April 5th Showbox card from Las Vegas. And until then, thanks very much for listening.